And I'm going to do the first Bible reading for us. So if you all would like to open up to Psalm 41, which is on page 556 of the Pew Bibles. Blessed is he who has regard for the weak. The Lord delivers him in times of trouble. The Lord will protect him and preserve his life. He will bless him in the land and not surrender him to the desire of his foes. The Lord will sustain him on his sickbed and restore him from his bed of illness. I said, oh Lord, have mercy on me. Heal me, for I've sinned against you. My enemies say, in mal- say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? Whenever one comes in to see me, he speaks falsely while his heart gathers slander. Then he goes abroad and spreads it abroad. All my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me, saying, A vile disease has beset him. He will never get up from the place where he lies. Even my close friend, whom I trusted, he who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Lord, have mercy on me. Raise me up that I might repay them. I know that you are pleased with me, for I am my enemy does not triumph over me. In my integrity, you uphold me and set me in your presence forever. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. Hello, family. Um, next Bible reading is uh, from Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 1. My name is Luke, if you haven't met me yet. Uh, So page 1007, Mark chapter 14. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of the people were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. The poor you will always have among you, and you can help them any time you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare my body for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. 
follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Good evening. It's good to uh, be together this evening. Uh, My name's Andrew. Uh, um, Let me pray as we come to God's word again. Father, please may my words this evening enable us to hear your word and to see your son clearly. In his name, amen. Well, as Matt said, we've been uh, working through Mark's gospel for a little while now. Um, And it is a dangerous thing to read a gospel. Because what the gospels do, not because it takes a while... But because what the Gospels do, and perhaps what Mark's Gospel does best of all, is to build up towards a climax in which we find ourselves addressed. Um, Early on, it's kind of possible to observe Jesus from a distance, to kind of admire him, ask questions about him, wonder who he is, what he's doing. But as the account progresses, we're less and less able to keep ourselves at a safe distance like that. More and more, we're drawn in and confronted through the way the characters in the story respond, the things Jesus himself says. We're confronted with what our own response is going to be to all this. This is why it's a dangerous thing to read a gospel, because by the end of it, if we've been paying attention... It's got to affect us. We've reached this point in Mark's gospel. Over the next weeks until Easter, we will read together the climax of the gospel, Mark's passion narrative, as it's called, the account of Jesus' last hours, arrest, trial, and execution. Here we come face to face with Jesus himself doing the one thing that from the beginning he had seen it as his mission to do. And it can't leave us unchanged. Because what it does is is it brings the truth about God and us to an almost alarmingly clear focus. 
This is especially the case, actually, in our passage today, uh, the beginning of Mark chapter 14. It's on page 1007. It'd be super helpful to have it uh, with you as we work through it. Um, in this passage, I think we, we see three striking things, each of which shows us something very important about reality. Uh, first, we see a startling act of devotion from this unnamed woman. And it shows us the way our hearts and our lives really ought to be. Second, we see a really ugly act of betrayal. And if we pay attention to it, it shows us, I think, why we fail to live up to our calling. And then thirdly, we see Jesus' unnerving self-possession and commitment to his own death. And that will show us, I think, where our hope lies. Uh, Now, these are tough truths, actually, and the temptation will be to look away. But we mustn't do that. Because what we see here is that our only hope really comes from facing reality. So let me invite you to look at these three things in Mark chapter 14. The first striking thing we see in this passage is the stunning act of devotion from this unnamed woman that Mark records in verses 1 to 9. Uh, the scene is set, of course, in the first two verses. It's, it's just two days away from Passover, the most important festival in the Jewish calendar, and the crowd in Jerusalem is swelling, as it did by many, many, many times the normal population. And so the situation is urgent, and the chief priests and Jesus' opponents, they're looking for a way to get him, literally in the next 48 hours, because they're worried the crowds will get out of control. In this context, Jesus is at his, his base in Bethany, uh, which we've seen uh, in the past uh, few weeks, how he kept kind of retreating to it and then coming back in the city with his people over the past few days of his time that he's been doing this. And in verse 3, Bethany's only three kilometers away from Jerusalem. And in verse 3, he's having dinner at the home of a guy called Simon, uh, the leper. Probably he's been healed at this point, though there was a leper colony in Bethany. And then this woman comes in, and she does something absolutely shocking. Uh, John's Gospel tells us that this woman was Mary, the sister of Lazarus, but Mark here leaves her unnamed, I think because he wants her to function more as a symbol. More on that to come. To understand what she does, I think we need to understand the cost they estimate the perfume that she pours out on Jesus is worth. Uh, In verse 5, if you see there, we're told it's worth more than a year's wages. Literally, the Greek says uh, more than 300 denarii. And now the denarius was the day's pay for a kind of wage labor. Uh, Sorry, the day's wage. Anyway, the wage for a day of labor. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, And so if you add it up, this is kind of like a year's worth of manual labor pay. In our context, based on the minimum wage, maybe $35,000. That's an expensive bottle of perfume. Um, There is, in fact, also no evidence that breaking a jar like this was the normal way you used it. This woman uses it in a way that commits her to using all of it. Right? She could have probably just used the stopper and used a little bit, but she breaks the jar so that she uses everything. It's an incredibly extravagant moment. I think we need to feel the extravagance of it. Uh, I've had a bit of trouble coming up with an analogy, but imagine this. Imagine you're just 
over at a mate's house watching South beat East. Good one, Luke, yes. Um, and, you know, you're just there. It's a fairly normal night. And somebody whips out a bottle of Penfold's Grange from 1951. That's the first year that vintage was, uh, you know, tried. Uh, and a bottle of that will cost you if you can find one. Anybody here got a bottle of that? Excellent. Okay, cost you thirty-five to forty-five thousand dollars. Ah, sixty-three. Okay, no, fifty-one. A bit more expensive. That's a, that's a forty-thousand-dollar bottle of wine. And they whip it out, and they just, you know, hey, have a glass, you know, and they use some in the cooking, and then they leave some till tomorrow and forget it. You kind of like, like what? You can. It's not a perfect example, but you can kind of understand the reaction of the disciples here, can't you? But of course, Jesus reacts quite differently. He sees it totally differently. In fact, the truly unnerving thing about this incident is not actually what the woman does. It's the way Jesus responds. Basically, he says that what she has done is about as good an action as a human being is capable of. Verse 6, he says, he rebukes his disciples and says that actually she has done, verse 6, a beautiful thing. Literally, it's just a good work. She has done something, I think he's saying, which is truly and without qualification, good. So much so that he says in verse 9, did you catch that? Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. In memory of her. Not of Jesus, of her. In this incredible, shocking moment of extravagance, this woman somehow shows us what human life is meant to be about. She shows us what a perfect human action looks like. Why? Why is that? Why is this such a great example of of a good work? Well, here we have to consider Jesus' words in verses 7 and 8. What he says there, I think, amounts to this. I've been mulling on this. I think what he's saying is, this woman has done what was in her power to show her love for Jesus in a way which, given the time and given what was about to take place, was absolutely right. She has acted, given who she was and where she was and what she had, in exactly the right way. The Bible says, as you may know, that human life is about loving God and loving our neighbours. That's an important principle of faith, actually, that those two responsibilities, they don't, actually con- they don't ultimately conflict. We won't finally have to choose between God and our neighbour. And that's because in the view of the Bible, you, you don't really love God when you forget your neighbour. And also, you don't really love your neighbor when you forget God. There's a unified responsibility placed before us. And so when Jesus says in verse 7, the poor you will always have with you, but not me, he wasn't saying that the poor don't matter or that we don't have obligations to the poor. The opposite, in fact. But what he was doing was saying that caring for the poor is not our number one moral responsibility as human beings. The first commandment is to love God. And it is not ultimately good for the poor for anyone to forget this. 
And in the circumstances that this woman found herself in, her calling as a human being to love God and neighbor came together in the person of Jesus in a way that made it absolutely right for her to show her devotion in this extravagant way. In this brilliant moment, this woman shows us the way our hearts ought to be. Because what she does is show us in her adoration of Jesus what it looks like to have God first in our hearts. Not to the exclusion of others, but first in order. And for all our world and all our other loves to revolve around him. In this last moment she has with Jesus before he's taken away to his death, she shows us what it would look like for a heart to be turned wholly towards God in love. And the, the really unnerving thing about this is that it shows us that that kind of devotion is what every one of us here was made for. We were made not just to live justly and fairly among our fellow human beings or to be decent citizens and good neighbours, loving wives and mothers, husbands and fathers, friends. We were made to love God. Friends, have you gotten hold of this truth? That you were made, that the purpose sown into your nature, that what it means for you to fulfill your potential as a person is to adore him, to adore Jesus, not just to know him, not just to obey him, not just to have him as an important part of your life, but to love him. As the end of Jesus' earthly life approaches, this woman brings this truth into stunning focus through her love for him. But we don't love God like this, do we? Not all the time, maybe not ever. In, in fact, even this woman, I'm absolutely sure, even this woman did not love God like this all the time. She didn't get it right like this all the time. This was a unique moment in which she represented more than she could otherwise manage to be. Which is why I think Mark doesn't name her. He wants her to be representative at this point. Why don't we love God? Why don't we see things clearly and get things right like this? Why don't we love with this kind of clarity and purity? Well, the second disturbing thing in our passage shows us why. The thing that happens immediately after. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. You know, it's incredibly easy to demonize Judas, to see him as a kind of ultra-villain, incomprehensively and mysteriously evil. You know, and, and the thing about that is then we don't have to think about him. But this, this, the, the disturbing truth is that even though Judas shows us humanity at its worst, it's still humanity that he shows us. Because where does Judas's betrayal come from? How does it happen? 
Well, we're not told exactly, but I think we're given enough clues to know that it wasn't from anything more than the sad, old, boring, pathetic sins we all know about. First, my guess is it seems to come from a kind of self-protectiveness. It seems, Mark at least seems to put it like Judas' betrayal is prompted by Jesus' insistence on death. He talks about, she's prepared my body for burial. And it's like that's, in Mark's account, the last straw for Judas. And he just gets out. He can't understand Jesus' apparent death wish, and so he just gets out while he can. He, he sees what's coming, and he, he protects himself. But of course, it's not just self-protectiveness, is it? It's greed as well. Because he didn't have to betray Jesus. He could have just left, couldn't he? But he goes to the chief priests. Why? Because he thinks he might get something from it. And in verse 11, we see them promise to give him money. Money. Nothing more exciting than money. But behind all of this, we also need to notice something else, I think. We need to pay attention to the fact that Judas was one of the 12. Did you see how that's emphasized? Verse 10 there, Judas Iscariot, one of the 12. Mark just kind of reminds us. And then later in verses 17 and following, when Jesus is telling his disciples what will happen, he draws attention to this again. He says, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And when the disciples ask in dismay, surely not I, he says, it's one of the 12. One of the 12! Those who'd been with him from the beginning. For three years, who'd seen all his miracles, who'd seen him cast out demons and raised up the paralyzed, who'd seen him mesmerize crowds with his teaching, overwhelm people with his parables, cut down his opponents with the most beautifully crafted remarks, who'd lived with him and eaten with him and seen his character, and it was one of them. How could that happen? It seems impossible. And yet we've seen, haven't we, how the disciples, all of them, constantly failed to understand Jesus, failed to grasp what he was on about, failed to see him. In fact, Judas simply shows us the terrible truth about the human capacity for self-centeredness how it's possible for us to be locked inside our own little world so that everything revolves around us and we can't see and we stop being able to see what's right in front of our faces. This is why, brothers and sisters, we fail to live as we ought to, fail to live with the clear-eyed love and goodness that we see in this moment with this woman because we're all at the center of our own little worlds. We're turned in on ourselves, obsessed with our own interests and blind to reality and so often unable to see the good that is right there before us. Judas reveals us at our worst 
but it is still us that he reveals, which is why he is so disturbing. Because he shows us that it lies within our power, and we know it too well, to do things that are actually so wicked that it would be, as Jesus says in verse 21, better never to have been born. In her love for Jesus, the woman shows us what we were made for. But in his betrayal of Jesus, Judas shows us why we can't live up to it and so are in desperate trouble. But thankfully, there is a third striking thing in our passage. No surprise, but it is important, isn't it? And it shows us where hope for us lies. And the third striking thing, I think, is this. It's Jesus' bearing. It's his calm and his self-possession as he heads towards his death. Next week, we'll see that this control and focus was, was anything but easy for Jesus as he cries out in agony in the garden. But in our passage, it's truly striking, isn't it? Jesus is completely in control of the situation. He's even in control of his own betrayal. In verses 12 to 16, did you notice it there? When we see this, we see this elaborate process for finding the room for the Passover meal. What's going on there? What's going on is that Jesus is keeping his disciples in the dark about where they're going to be. He's making it so that he is the only one who knows the plan to deprive Judas of an opportunity to betray him. They don't even know when they're going to be meeting in a couple of hours. Jesus has set it up so it's like that. He set it up so that the disciples can't know in advance and Judas can't dob him in. And then as they're sitting there, he shows that he's completely in control by predicting his betrayal. In fact, he chooses that moment to let the disciples know to make it clearer that in his view, this has all been prophesied in Scripture. It's as it is written, he says, I think referring to the psalm we read before, Psalm 41, verse 9, which says, Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And then at the supper, he makes it clear beyond doubt that he is choosing his death. He's not responsible for it. It will be a terrible crime, but he is in control of the situation. He uses the bread and wine to show that his death is his gift for his disciples, that it is for them, that he is giving his body over and allowing his blood to be shed for the sake of many. As they drank the wine cup passed around, Kind of would have been an unnerving moment. They're drinking it, and then he says, that's my blood. This is my blood of the covenant, verse 24, which is poured out for many. Now, these are words that are powerful and incredibly significant. And in fact, everything about this moment has been designed by Jesus to provide an interpretation of his death. It's a Passover meal. Passover was about Israel's salvation through the sacrifice of a lamb. Jesus is saying he is like a Passover sacrifice in some way. He speaks of the covenant by which he's saying that there is a new moment opening up for God's, for, for people's relationship with God, a new possibility 
is happening through his death. But they're most important of all, I think, are those words poured out for many. Because what they point us to is a passage in the Old Testament that was key for Jesus' self-understanding at this moment. They're a reference to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. It will be helpful for you to, if you've got a Bible, I'm going to read it, but if you've got a Bible, to turn there. Isaiah chapter 53, and can somebody give me a page number when you get there? Because I forgot to do this. 731, 731. Um, We've seen Jesus allude to this passage before, when in chapter 10 he spoke of his death as a ransom for many. It's a passage right from the beginning of chapter 53. It's a passage that describes a servant of the Lord who would suffer on behalf of God's people, who would be, in verse 3 there, despised and rejected, and who would be, in verse 5, pierced for our transgressions, on whom God would lay, verse 6, bottom of verse 6, the Lord would lay the iniquity of us all, who would be, verse 7, oppressed and afflicted, but who would not open his mouth, and like a sheep before his shearers, her shearers would be silent. Next week, as we look at the rest of chapter 14, we'll see how Jesus does exactly that when he stands before his shearers, his accusers. He stays silent. And this servant, the passage concludes in verse 12, poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. I've taken you to that passage because that is what Jesus thought he was doing by dying. That's why he invited his disciples to accept his death for them by eating the bread and drinking the wine because he saw his death as God's means of giving them life. He would pour out his life in order to bear the sin of many And bear it away forever. Can you feel the power of Jesus in this moment? Can you see his resolve? His conviction? He could have outed Judas. He could have done it. He could have stopped it. He could have avoided it. But he didn't. All through Mark, actually, we've seen him moving towards this, keeping his eyes fixed on Jerusalem, refusing to be thrown off his task, refusing to be turned or tempted away from his calling. And now, at the very end, he remains utterly in control and stays on target. And because of this, there is hope for us. Hope for us who, like the disciples, in no way deserve to be a part of this moment, in no way deserve to share in this meal. But there is hope for us because he did it for us. He did it for you. And he invites us all to put our trust in him, in his death, to let him take upon himself all our failures and all our sin, our hopeless inadequacy, before God, our failure to love him and to suffer the punishment in our place. 
Jesus did in his death what needed to be done for us to live. He knew what he was doing. He chose it. And he offers it to us, as he did to the disciples, so that we can live. Mark's passion narrative brings things into stunningly clear focus. And that's because the death of Jesus is at the very centre of God's dealings with this world. And so it is time now and in the coming weeks for all of us to make a response. So as we come tonight to celebrate the Lord's Supper, let me finish by just helping us reflect on what it means to share in this moment. When we share this meal, we come to Jesus' table, just like the disciples at the Last Supper, and we hear him speak to us and offer us his death. Take and eat, drink. This is an opportunity for us to respond in faith and to put our trust in him. What are we doing? Let's make sure we're clear. What are we doing when we do this? What are we actually doing when we put our trust in him? Well, from the three things our passage has shown us, we can see that we do at least three things. First, we acknowledge that we really do need a saviour. We can't come to this table with pride. We can't come without acknowledging the brokenness and ugliness of our lives so much of the time, the ways we get We reject God and and get caught up in ourselves. The ways we live closed down to reality and to goodness. When we come here, we're saying that we needed one to be pierced for our transgressions. This is a humble meal. Second, we express our confidence in Jesus' death that it really is enough to save us. He really has done what we needed so that we really are right with God because of it. We shouldn't come to Jesus' table with doubts about whether we could really be forgiven, whether God could really be pleased with us after all we've done. That would be an offense against the conviction and clarity of Jesus at this moment with which he went to his death to be our saviour. What we needed, he has done. He bore our sin and we must not presume to bear it ourselves any longer. This is a meal where you get to have peace. And finally, when we share the Lord's Supper, what we're doing is committing ourselves to a vision for our own transformation. We're committing ourselves, if I can put it like this, to, be, to becoming like this woman in this moment of adoration. Utterly devoted to our Lord and King. And we shouldn't share in this meal if we don't want to become like her. If we don't want to become people. We're not there yet. But if we don't want to be there, to become people whose hearts have but one love because this is a meal that will change us not because it's magic or anything but because trusting in Jesus' death 
will change us. It will awake in us a love that must displace all others and make us new. So let me invite you to come and share in it. But more importantly, more importantly, Jesus invites you to come and share in it, if that is what you want to do. Amen.